I have the privilege of welcoming um, the Reverend Wesley Williams this morning. He is going to be giving us a wonderful message this morning, and he has been a dear family friend I know of the Cushing family. When I was, I think, around two years old, I began calling him Uncle Wes when my mother worked for him up in Boston, and so we are so delighted to have you um, give us the morning message this morning. Thank you, David, and good morning, Faith Community Church. It's wonderful to be here. I've been here before. Uh, I recognize some of you, so I'm going to be on my best behavior this morning because I see that you already know me. I am very, very honored to be here because, uh, as David, Pastor David just mentioned, uh, his mother, Regina, and I worked together when I was the director for urban ministry in Boston. And Regina was a very, very calming, lovely presence. You know what I'm talking about. And of course, and I know, I know uh, Pastor San's sister, uh, Leonora. So yes, I am. I'm almost a part of the family. And uh, it's good to be here with the faith community family. Let me just start by saying the Reverend Martin Luther King, who we are honoring today, babysat for my sister and me. And now that I have your attention, <laughs> let me explain. We were living in the housing projects in 1951 in Boston. My father was in Boston University. He was attending the Boston University School of Theology. And there were only a small handful of black seminarians at Boston University at that time. We were the only ones who lived in Boston. The rest of them were from away, as we say in New England. And our house was the gathering place. I think part of it was because of the camaraderie. But most of all, I think it had to do with the fact that there was always something on the stove. <laughs> but among that cohort of black seminarians who were always at our house was the 26-year-old Martin Luther King. He was there working on his PhD in systematic theology. And we just simply called him Martin. He was a single young man. I was eight, and my sister was four. Now, when they would come to the house, my, my mother would use that opportunity with these built-in babysitters to run and do errands. But I loved it. We loved it when Martin, as we called it, babysat, because he was so soft. He was a pushover. <laughs> we, could, we did, we could do what we knew we weren't supposed to do, and Martin was just fine with it, you know, as long as everybody was happy. Um, one day, I can remember, my mother went out, she was going out, Martin was there babysitting. 
And um, I don't know, as soon as she left, I don't know what it was. I can't even remember. I think I repressed it, what I did. But she doubled back, and she came back and caught my hand in the cookie jar. Well, my mother believed in corporal punishment, okay? She had no qualms about that. So she lit into me, and of course, Martin, who couldn't stand suffering, couldn't stand to see suffering, you know, came in and tried to intervene, you know, for me. But when I saw that, I really did, did scream, fall back, and so forth. And my mother said to me what all of us in this room have always heard, keep it up and I'll really give you something to cry about. <laughs> Remember that? Have you heard that? Well, when she finished with me and I retired, I would kind of like went to the corner and began to lick my wounds and all. She turned to Martin and she says, now you know, Martin, that he knew that you were, he wasn't supposed to do that. And, you, and Martin would go, I know, Sister Williams, but I know. She said, oh, be quiet or I'll give it to you too. He'll stuff like that. Yeah. Well, um, I uh, just wanted to relate that story to you because this was the essence of the man. He just couldn't stand to see suffering. He couldn't see anybody violated. What you saw of Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, was simply the way he was. I can remember one Sunday, somebody came in. We were all sitting at the table, and somebody came in, and they had just come from Symphony Hall to uh, hear a, a concert, a recital by a young tenor. Well, everybody said, well, how was the concert? And this person went on, oh, very fine. It was a nice concert. But then they launched into this description of the man's appearance how ugly he was. And she was in, of course, I was six years old. I was enjoying it. I thought it was funny. But Martin stopped her very quickly and said, you know, you have missed the entire essence of that man's offering. You missed the spirit by focusing on something as superficial as looks and background. And he went on, I guess, it must have been about a four or five minute diatribe, you know, on the worth of the individual. Well, of course, all of us kind of buried our heads in our plates, you know, in silence. I had never heard Martin go off like this. He was angry. And when he finished, the person said, well, you really believe that, don't you? And he said, with a tremor in his voice, but with conviction, yes. I really do. So this was the essence of the man that we're honoring today. What you saw is essentially, as Flip Wilson used to say, just what you got. Well, the Reverend Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, because his doctorate was not an honorary doctorate, it was an earned doctorate in systematic theology. But I put the Reverend first because before he became that international icon for civil rights, before he was a Nobel Peace Prize recipient, he was first and foremost a minister of the gospel. 
And yes, yes, even though Dr. Harold DeWolf and Dean Mulder were his advisors, his inspiration came from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was a minister first and foremost. I asked my mother a little later, I said, Ma, was there anything outstanding about him? Do you remember? And she says, yes, I used to listen to them at the table. They would banter and they would tease one another. And sometimes they would get serious. But I said to your father, if this man really believes what he says, if he really acts on it, he could be a power in this world. Well, hmm, that was really what happened. While he was in Boston, he met a lovely young woman, Coretta Scott. And uh, they became engaged. And they would come to the house, and I can remember Coretta, she was so earnest, she would walk around behind my mother, she was pushing and pulling things out of the oven, you know, with a clipboard, you know, asking for good points on how to be a good minister's wife. And I thought, oh, please. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. But, but she was there in Boston going to the New England Conservatory of Music um, and uh, to receive vocal training, and she wanted to teach music. And uh, Martin knew, and I have to tell you, Martin was a presence in the South End. If any of you know Boston, it was in that South End community. He was a presence even then. Wasn't very tall, not a very imposing figure, but he had a, uh, a charisma. He had a way about him. And women just loved him. He could have had his pick, but Coretta, Coretta was it. And so, Martin and Coretta, in 1953, returned to Alabama. They got married, and our family was sent to a five-point charge way up in the remote hills of West Virginia. But we always kept in touch. I wanted to say, like, going back to Martin and Coretta and their relationship. The next time you're in Boston, please go to Boston Commons and see that wonderful bronze statue called the Embrace. Have you seen, you may have seen it on TV or something, but it's this great big 20 foot high, 40 foot wide bronze sculpture, and it depicts the hands and arms of Martin and Coretta wrapped around each other in a warm embrace. This was when, and I don't know if we have the picture, there's the sculpture, right. But this depicts the embrace that Martin and Coretta held each other in when he learned that he was to be the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And so uh, you must go and see that. It really is an imposing, imposing structure. Well, anyway, here we are, 1954, Martin and Coretta married in Montgomery, and we're in the remote hills of West Virginia. And in 1954, does anybody know what happened in 1954? 
It was who? Yeah, somebody knows. A 1954, our nation experienced a monumental change. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down that landmark decision that U.S. state laws establishing racial segregation in public schools were unconstitutional. Even if the segregated schools are otherwise equal in quality. This decision was monumental because heretofore we had all been operating under the old law, the 1896 Supreme Court decision known as Plessy versus Ferguson, which held that racial segregation laws did not violate the U.S. Constitution as long as the facilities for each race were equal in quality. It was a doctrine that, was, that came to be known as separate but equal. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard of it? Well, they, they were separate, but they were never equal, I can tell you. Uh, and so this was a monumental thing. This was a major victory for the civil rights movement and a model for many future impact litigation cases, some even going on beyond public schools. Well, there we were in Seabird, West Virginia. I mean, wondering what we were going to do about this, wondering how we were going to lead the church in this whole thing. These people had never gone to school together, whites and blacks. And they could do really what they wanted to do because they were hemmed in by these mountains, 4,000 feet up high, uh, above sea level. Well, the Negro students, as we were called then, this is the period then where we, Negro students had to travel nine miles to Marlington, West Virginia, to go to a two-room clapboard, clapboard schoolhouse whereas the white students only traveled two miles to a lovely, really imposing brick structure in Hillsborough, West Virginia, the little town where, where Pearl Buck, the author, was born. Well, nine miles around these treacherous hills, I mean really, really hairpin turns, going up, even the people who were born in West Virginia respected those curves, those hills. Well, and we would go, my sister and I would laugh, we would go to school in the dark and come home in the dark, you know? Well, my sister and I went to, uh, my mother and father decided that they were going to take the lead in integrating that little community, okay? So what that meant was that my sister and I had to go to Hillsborough High. We did go to high, and we weren't afraid. We were just very, very excited that we were going to go to school and come home in the daylight. So we went, we went, and we anticipated trouble. We did. Um, but we went, and when you're kids, you just don't, you're not afraid. I don't know, somehow you just don't think about, you know, what's going to happen as much as we do as adults. But we got there, and my sister who was in the first grade at the time, lovely, rich, brown-skinned sister. She takes after my father. She was sitting there in uh, her seat, and the little boy behind her said, 
because he just couldn't puzzle this thing out. He said, now in his West Virginia accent, now I heard this morning on the radio that the colored were supposed to go to school with the whites. Now, are you colored or are you white? And my sister threw her hand to her sable breast, and she declared that she was white because she didn't want any trouble out of GT. And GT said, oh, okay. And they became the best of friends. All he needed to know was, was she colored or white? What happens to us? What happens to it? Is this what Jesus means when he says you've got to be like a child to get into the kingdom? Huh? I mean, Rodgers and Hammerstein had it right. You've got to be taught before it's too late. Finish it with me. Before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate, you've got to be carefully taught. Well, I say here, I submit to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that if we can learn, we can unlearn some very, very unsavory, unrighteous, unjust attitudes. Well, one morning, my mother called out very excitedly, come, come, look quick, there's Martin on TV. We didn't believe it, but we scurried because, I mean, in those days, there were so few colored on TV that we, by the time you got there, they were gone. So we ran, and sure enough, there before our disbelieving eyes was Martin before a cluster of microphones answering a whole string of questions. It seems that a Negro seamstress named Rosa Parks and three others were seated in the front row of a college section on the city bus on their way home from work. I know you all know this story, but it doesn't hurt, I mean, to hear it again, huh? Well, <laughs> when the white section filled, the bus driver, Jane Blakey, stood up and asked for the four Negro riders to vacate their seats, even though they were sitting in the colored section, vacate their seats so that a white man who had just gone on could sit down. Well, three of them got up. They complied. Rosa Parks did not. And she was arrested on the spot. Arrested for civil disobedience, fined $10 plus $4 in court fees. Well, the Negro citizens in Montgomery were outraged, and they decided to meet. And the bus company, they felt, had to be confounded, the, uh, confronted. The white power structure in Montgomery had to be confronted. And you have to understand, this is 1954. Things could be very, very dangerous for black folk to rise up and confront the white power structure. But they were going to confront anyhow. And they had to have a plan because they knew it was not going to be easy. But out of that resolve came the Montgomery Improvement Association. And Martin Luther King, the newly arrived 26-year-old minister, fresh from Boston University School of the, uh, uh, Theology, at his reluctance, found himself 
the newly elected leader. Well, he says, if you think I can render some service, I will. It wasn't easy. The Montgomery Improvement Association, the MIA, thought that after a series of meetings with the bus company, the demands for an end to segregated seating and having Negroes pay their fares up front and then having to go back to the back of the bus to enter while enduring all of this enduring racial slurs, they thought it would end if they could sit down and negotiate with the bus company. But as Martin says, freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. The bus company held out. They wouldn't relent. And after much discussion at these nightly mass meetings, which were very dangerous because the Ku Klux Klan was circling the church where they would meet, and the Klan members knew what they were meeting about, but they just wanted to show their presence and to intimidate. After much discussion, the folk at the mass meeting decided that the only way to deal with this is to hit them where it hurts, economically. Boycott. It would be a, it would be a challenge because 90% of the Negro workers depended on the bus for, for transportation to and from work, and some had to go for miles. Staying off the buses wouldn't be easy. Well, days of negotiation melted into months. The bus company still wouldn't relent, and so they went ahead with the boycott. Cars were donated for transporting those too old to walk. Churches all over the country sent shoes for the people who were walking. One of the reporters asked a 77-year-old woman who was walking miles to work if she was weary. And she responded, as Martin said, with ungrammatical profundity. Well, she said, my feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. And of course, the rest, as they say, is history. Now, what I want to say here this morning is that church, we are called, yes, to come together in common assemblage to worship God, and you've done a wonderful job this morning. I mean, and, and it's not a job, it really is. It's, it's an outpouring, and uh, I feel the spirit here. We are called to come together in common assemblage and to give God praise and adoration, to confess all of those things. But we're also called to bring that together with social justice. We cannot see our brothers and sisters in need or being violated without applying what we have learned and experienced in common assemblage and worship. We cannot do that unless we bring our piety, our personal piety, together with social justice. How can we see our brother and sister in need and shut up our bowels against them? By our fruits, those outside the church will know us.
What have you done? We have been given a special mandate by our Lord Jesus Christ where he says, Come, O blessed of my Father. Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the beginning of the world. For when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was sick and in prison, you came and you visited me. And the righteous will say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it unto me. Yes. Well, when we know of injustices and violation against any of God's children, God calls us to stand up as a witness for right. And don't let anyone dissuade you because standing up for justice and righteousness is right. Martin used to remind those at those mass meetings at night. He would say, you know, we're not wrong. We're not wrong in what we're doing. If we are wrong, the Supreme Court is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer and never came down to earth. If we are wrong, justice is a lie. And here King employed his favorite biblical passage on, the, on, on justice. He says, we will fight. We will fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And that ought to be our mandate. That ought to be our motto. And fighting wasn't easy. The work of justice is never easy. It certainly wasn't easy for Rosa Parks, but on December the 1st, 1955, when she decided to keep her seat, to stay seated, she took a stand for justice. And the Negro community in Montgomery stood with her. There were all kinds of obstacles. Local car insurance uh, insurers stopped insuring cars, particularly those cars participating in the carpools. Taxi cabs were required to charge a minimum fare, mostly way beyond the ability of both the Negro readers, uh, riders to pay. Negro women, most of whom were domestic workers, were daily harassed by their madams, by their employers when they got to work. Men were being laid off without warning. Credit was cut off at the grocery stores. There were bomb threats. But one of the most difficult obstacles was the fact that not all Negroes there in Montgomery were in harmony with this boycott. But the majority kept walking. It certainly wasn't easy. And for one year and 16 days, the city of Montgomery had to relent. They were, making, they were losing $3,000 a day. So they had to relent. And it finally ended with the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that segregation on public buses is unconstitutional. Now, most of those who were around then have gone on to glory. But I think that they would be astounded to learn that we are still grappling with essentially many of the same things. 
still struggling with the difficult questions that those leaders, the church, and the states wrestled with back in their day. Why in 2023 should we be still haggling about whether or not United States citizens can vote? Substandard housing. Why would we still be dealing with unequal education, inequality in healthcare delivery, harassment, and even murder at the hands of a police whose very motto is to protect and to serve? Why is that? Why are the police seen as a friendly presence in the white community, but an invasive force in the black community? Very, very different perceptions. And that extends back to slavery. Back to slavery when overseers were sent out to go out and recapture slaves. Uh, and uh, when they even recaptured them, they were always there patrolling, patrolling. And if you say, as one rapper says, if you say overseer, 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 overseer often enough, it'll evolve into overseer, overseer, officer, officer, officer. I'm not saying that all policemen are bad. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we do need to look very seriously in 2023 at police reform. We really need to look at this culture. What is it that makes the bad apples come in and become the face of the police? I am very, very, I have police in our family, and I really do believe that we can do better. I really do believe that we can, we can be, do better. But at any rate, we just feel that we get away. Time should, be, should bring about change. We should be at a different place. But time is not, time is a static thing. And Reverend Dr. King explains in his letter from Birmingham jail that time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively, destructively. If people of goodwill don't use time more effectively, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes to the tireless efforts of people willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. And so our time under God is now. As the prophets have said to us, a nation can have a true covenant relationship with God only when the people of that nation deal justly with one another. Therefore, social justice is an indispensable part of a right relationship with God. As Micah says, as Amos says, as Joel says, Hear, O Israel, he has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do 
justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And Jesus made this very, very apparent when he declared, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he finished saying that, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and said, today, today, the scripture has been fulfilled as you have just heard it. Our time under God is now. We cannot wait. We cannot wait until we become more uh, educated or uh, until you feel better about yourself. We cannot. Gee, uh, what he says, what Martin says that really resonates with me is that everybody can serve. You know, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and agree, verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. And as one poet expressed it, use the talents that you possess for the woods would be very silent if no birds sang except the best. So use what you have been given. What can you do? Mentor. Take a young person under your wing. Teach them. Learn about them. Attend to them. Establish relationships with people different from your usual circle or people just like you particularly people of color, and I see this is a, a mixed congregation, it's great, but seminars, lectures, roundtable discussions are all essential, but there is no substitute for relationships. Relationships, relationships. Organize social gatherings, learn all you can, learn the state of current affairs of the people. Um, you know, how much does it cost to educate rather than incarcerate. And it just reminds me, I just have to tell you the story of this young man who said, <laughs> his name was Dirty Mike. And uh, he was in Boston, and you know, we used to see Mike, and Mike would wait until dark, scale the fence, take a motorbike that he saw, that he wanted, take it apart, get the pieces over the fence, reassemble them, and have it in working order, all right, in a very, very short while. Well, now, Mike, of course, had to go to jail when they found out. But why not invest in a person like Mike, who obviously has talent? That's where we should do. Not respond negatively, but let's look at where people are and invest in them. And so, basically, what I am saying is, brothers and sisters, I think you already have it here. It's a wonderful, wonderful gathering. I feel the spirit here. I know that probably many of you are already out there helping your brothers and sisters. But while you are working, just keep Dr. King's favorite song in, here, in your mind as you're going on. Have you ever heard, if I can help somebody as I travel along, if I can help somebody with a word of song, 
If I can help somebody from doing wrong, then my living will not be in vain. Then my living will not be in vain. Oh, my living will not be in vain. If I can help somebody as I sing this song, then my living will not be in vain. Amen. <laughs>